Mayo, I have a package coming this morning. It's from Apple. Ooh. Do you have any any guesses on what it might be? Hmm. You're changing a laptop again. <laughs> no, not a laptop, not a laptop. So right now I have the overpriced, stupid Pro Display XDR that I bought before the studio display. And recently I've been thinking about getting rid of it and quote unquote downgrading. So I have a studio display coming today to try that out and see if I want to make that change. If you've already bought it, why would you downgrade though? <laughs> well, mainly the biggest, I want to get rid of it before whatever's next comes out because it's already dropped in value and they're so hard to resell because obviously like on eBay, it's a pain to sell it and ship a 32 inch display. Mm -hmm. And also I've gotten like increasingly frustrated by the fact that it doesn't have speakers and it doesn't have a built-in camera. Well, if only you realized that when you paid six grand for it in 20 There was nothing else available. <laughs> there was nothing. I was stupid. I know. Yeah. But it served me well. It served me well. Yeah, it's not... It's, it's disappointing, I think, that monitor in the sense that, like, it, the... Num the for the price that it is because they tried to pitch it as like a reference monitor or light yeah. right, for professionals, but then all the professionals said it's not good enough to replace the reference monitor use cases. So it kind of just sits in this like no man's land where like most people in the world, like you know, low, who use MacBook Pros, probably would benefit from a you know nice big rent um high resolution right. thirty two inch monitor, but they don't really care about you know the fine details of the middling color reproduction it can do right compared to the professional market and the mini led nature of it is worse compared to the MacBook pro screen for instance because you know the pro display xdr only has like 500 zones whereas like the ipad and the laptop and the MacBook pro have like 10,000. so only a couple of years later they like dramatically improved the spec of what they offer at least in you know the smaller screen size i'm sure it's more complicated when you're doing a 32 inch panel um but also you don't get promotion and all, the, and all the other cool stuff so it just kind of just feels like a product for not many people really like and most no. people that have bought one kind of regret it it seems like for one yeah or another. i don't regret buying it i just regret like i don't know the timing of it or not just waiting it out because it was i got it in december of 2020 so that was like a year and a half before the studio display was available but i, I don't know i guess it served me well and we'll see if I actually end up making the switch because it could be that like I get the studio display, which is 27 inches and it, and I miss that extra five inches and I end up sending the studio display back and keeping the pro display. But we'll it's see. It's hard to downgrade screen size once you got used exactly, to it. Exactly, yeah. That is an issue. Yeah. And the studio display, I, don't, I haven't bought a studio display either because I don't think that's perfectly positioned. No. It's... You know, it has speakers, which is nice. Uh, but the camera's not great on it, as well documented. Um, it does have a camera, I guess that's a bonus. But the that doesn't have promotion. You know, it's 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 and it's expensive. Like the Pro Display XDR is expensive, but the Studio Display is expensive as well. Like I, I would kind of want them to do something in like the you know two to three thousand dollar range that is like a Pro Display XDR in like screen size and resolution and one twenty hertz, but. What they have right now is like a $1,600, 27-inch, which isn't high refresh rate and not, you know, not mini-LED or whatever. Like, it's... Like, the thing, the thing, the most thing that's most disappointing about the shoe display is just that it's the same panel that they've been shipping in, like, the LG Ultrafine from, like, 2015. Right, yeah. So, like, you know, you're spending a lot of money to get something that has really been on the market for seven years. And, of course, you have to pay whatever $300 extra to get the tilt and height adjustable stand. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I, so, I was so annoyed. The version with just the like tilt adjustable stand was on sale, but the version with the tilt and height adjustable stand wasn't on sale. So I just had to bite the bullet and get the, like pay the full price for the adjustable one. But I don't know. I think, I think the speakers are kind of what finally pushed me over the edge because I had the Harman whatever sound sticks for the longest time. Oh, you had time. like the, uh, the the classic iMac G3 speakers, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then they died, and those were a pain because you had the all the cables running around, but they worked, and now I don't really want to buy anything else in that regard. So I figure I'll try this. Either At my old house, I used HomePods as my laptop speakers. That was 
the HomePod is good for that, but it doesn't really keep up with notification sounds. Mm. But you have all your notification sounds muted, I guess. Yeah, I don't have that problem. On um um in my new house, I've kind of just gone without speakers in the office at the moment. I just use the luckily the MacBook Pros like twenty twenty one speakers are pretty good. Yeah. So I've just kind of gone off of those and put the HomePods in other rooms. But it would be nice to have because I have like a really old my second monitor because I use like the laptop monitor and the right. external monitor together. And my uh, the thing is just some like old Dell thing. It doesn't have speakers or anything either. Um, so it could be a candidate for a studio display replacement. But at this point, I'm so far into the life cycle of the studio display. Uh, it's just like I'm waiting for the next gen of whatever's going to happen, right? Either Pro Display XDR2 mm-hmm. or Studio Display XDR2 um, because it feels kind of stupid to dive in at this point. But at the well, same thank time... You, thank you for that. Well, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But at the same time, uh, I was also the person who waited, you know, six years with a butterfly keyboard which was an absolute disaster and regretted that immensely and the rumors <laughs> that they're currently on the studio on the display side of life you know they don't pit it they're being a new studio display for like two more years so you gotta no. wait a pretty long time there were some murmurs that apple was prepping a pro display dr replacement alongside the mac pro but obviously that hasn't happened um so we're kind of just left in the lurch at the moment so first off today, we have some rumors from Mark Gurman in his Power On newsletter. Last week, we talked about the iPhone 15 Pro bezels and Apple making them smaller and some of the production challenges around doing that. And in Power On this week, Gurman kind of just reiterated that it's happening and he specified that the 15 Pro and 15 Pro Max will go from 2.2 millimeters down to 1.5 millimeters which is an impressive 32% drop. But I think what was most interesting about what German said is that he also reported that the iPad is going to get the same treatment as the iPhone 15 Pro at some point. So that would presumably be a pretty big drop in the size of the iPad bezels as well. I guess probably starting with the iPad Pro. Yeah, because the iPad bezels are thicker than 2.2 millimeters already, right? yeah. And but because at the moment they house the camera in line, right? There's no notch, there's no there's no island. The 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 iPad bezel is symmetric, which also means it's thicker, and um, so you get this like uni- uniform appearance. But it, the bezels are you know probably what five, six, seven millimeters wide on the yeah. final edges, uh, and that means they can contain the cameras and stuff inside them, Face ID and everything. If they go to one point five millimeter bezels like the iPhone fifteen uh, Pro Pro line, like they're going to have to change the design a white they're gonna have to put either a notch on it or an island on the ipad right the island makes sense i mean it's already on the the iphone i guess or notch too because the notch is on the macbook i don't know it's i could see them going either way i mean the the dynamic island would provide more functionality at the same time i don't know which would be easier and look better because the other thing is the ipad um, for a long time has had this idea of you can like use it in any orientation and it's kind of the same whichever way you hold it up yeah which is 90 percent true but obviously the camera has always been on the other edge and when it did have a button you generally used it with the button at the bottom or on, on the, you know one side or the other so like it's not a 100 percent accurate statement but it's mostly there and when they did the 2018 you know it is symmetrical on every edge whereas if you slap an island on it then you're basically promoting one side or the other uh, but I think that's, you know, a fair trade-off to do because a lot of people do only use it one way up. I mean, you know, look at most of Apple's marketing images. They show it stuffed in a in a, in a a keyboard case in one orientation the entire time. So I think they would lose the privilege of it being, you know, you can choose any way. It adapts to any way you want to hold it uh, for the sake of smaller bezels because I think thinner bezels are what sells, you know? Like, yeah. it, looks, it looks impressive. You can make the screen go to the edge as much as possible. People will buy that because it looks better. And you get a bit of extra screen real estate or the overall body of the thing gets smaller. So it is, you know, there's huge benefits on, on that regard. And also the iPad, the what is it, the 10th generation, it has the camera on the other side, you know, on the hor- so when it's in horizontal orientation, it's on the top bezel. So you have, I would think that that's coming to the iPad Pro at some point, which then you could just well, give it a... We're expecting a bit of an iPad Pro redesign in 2024, right? Yeah, so early twenty twenty four. That the twenty four update will basically get what the iPad, the base model iPad, got in terms mm-hmm. of you know the the camera relocation and the addition of um, 
function keys on the keyboard, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is like a, you know, it's such a weird quirk that the base model got that before the Pro did, but it's just how the the, the refresh cycles worked out. Um, but I don't think the 24 gen is going to get the super thin bezels or anything, right? Like, that's... No, that's way further. The phrased it, it was it's further yeah. off. Yeah. Last week with the iPhone 15 Pro, we talked about how the smaller bezels might... Some people were concerned about having less bezel like to hold on to. Is that a bigger deal on the iPad, do you think? Or is it kind of the same as what we were saying about the iPhone where Apple can do it and you can hold on to the back and there's software stuff they can do. But on the iPad, is it a bigger deal? It probably does matter a little bit more. But like I think the solution that we spoke about last week applies just the same way. You, you don't have to make all of the edge screen interactive you can right. do the kind of safe area thing right and just give give them give it a invisible border of you can hold it with your thumbs on these sides and there will never be buttons in those positions because they'll be inside the safe area so developers won't put anything there it, but when you're watching a video or you're zooming into a photo it can take up the full expansive dis- display canvas so just because you know let's say the screen goes from 95% to 99% and, mm-hmm. But only two extra percentage points of that additional screen can actually be touched, and the rest of it's just like for appearance. That's still better. Like it looks better, and when you're watching videos, you're watching media content, it fills the screen. So, right. Just like there's there's ways for them to work around the fact that yeah, your thumbs drift to sit somewhere, um, but just like do that on the notch on the uh, on on the phone. Right, you have that area in the ears which. Or, you know, where the, when you used to have a notch, it was ears, and now with the island, it's just like the space above the, yeah. the island. You know, there's no real utility to that space. It just looks a lot better that it's, you know, one continuous piece of screen. And that same principle can be applied to the iPad when they take it even more bezel-less. Then the Shrimp Apple Pro account on Twitter, they also said this week that maybe an iPad mini 7th generation is in the works. This was pretty vague and didn't really say when or what would be new but i think we talked about how i wanted a new ipad mini either last week or the week before Mm -hmm. so i'm excited about the idea that it's maybe coming or maybe at least in consideration yeah i'm sure it'll get a spec bump at some point but i think what you were kind of talking about before was wanting you know the better screen technology yeah ipad mini pro yeah ipad mini pro kind of thing which i don't think they're gonna do um we've we've been expecting an ipad air update right uh, which will get the M3 chip because it skipped the M2 chip. Um, yeah. I presume at some point they'll do an iPad Mini 7 with the new chip inside. Um, but the iPad Mini is not M1, right? It's A15. A15, yeah. Yeah, so A17 or something, iPad Mini update next year, maybe, something like that. Or if it's this full, it'll be A14, whatever. I just think the iPad Mini pricing makes it such an awkward product because it's right there at $500. It lines up with the iPad Air kind of structure, but for five hundred dollars, I just want a better screen. It's not, it's not good. It's not as it doesn't, it doesn't even seem as good as the iPad Air screen. <laughs> it's weird. It's a weird product. They should make it cheaper. I think it should be like a three ninety nine thing. I'd rather them make it more expensive and add a better screen, but but then I think I would, less people to buy it. Like, yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what they're fighting against, right? Like demand. And I think you look at the iPad lineup and it is dominated by sales of the cheapest iPad that exists. Yeah. And then it's the iPad Pro, like secondary to that. And everything else is even less. Um, so I think if they wanted to make the iPad Mini more of a success, they should try and push it down market. Because I don't, I know you want a Pro iPad Mini, but I think that's a small segment compared to people who just want cheap tablets, yeah. right? For their family or whatever. Um, and like a kid's product, you know, kids, children, young adult, that kind of thing. And a three ninety nine iPad Mini is um, appealing, especially in the wake of the death of the iPod Touch, right? Like, oh, true. Yeah. Versus an iPad Mini Pro, like you'd buy it, but who else would? You know, like it's not. It's a, I think it's the much more market appeal. So so far, you've called me stupid for buying a studio display and crushed my dreams of an iPad Mini Pro. So we're <laughs> off to a great start today. What what else is coming up? Yeah. Can... What? A, well, how about <laughs> uh, how about pulp. How about a dark gray titanium Apple Watch Ultra, which is another thing German said Apple has coming. He said they tested it last year for the first gen Ultra, and it's possible it could reappear this year for the second gen. And then Shrimp Apple Pro kind of more firmly said, yes, it's coming this year. And to keep with the theme, you bought the first gen Apple Watch Ultra, right? Yes, I did. 
and I think dark gray looked prettier. So clearly, you should have waited. Yet. <laughs> no, I'll just buy it. I'll just upgrade. I'll just upgrade. I mean, would you would you would you change just for the color? Because like, I'm not sure there's going to be any other changes. No, I guess maybe I, they'll put a new chip in it that the Series Nine gets. But what benefit is the new chip really going to give me? Like, there's never been a time where I'm using my Apple Watch Ultra and say, "Wow." I wish this thing was faster. Yeah, but you didn't ask my question. <laughs> would, would, would you change just for the new color? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, the dark gray maybe. one would look prettier. I, to be honest, even if it was dark gray, I still... Well, it, 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 the Apple Watch Ultra is always going to be alien to me because this, it's way too big for my wrist. It just never... It won't, it won't fit at all. Um you know, I can't do the 45mm normal watch, let alone the 49 one. But even ignoring the size difference, the physical aesthetic of it, where it's like made more chunky and it has like the crown guard on the side that sticks out, I just don't really like how that looks. I think the main line yeah. Apple watch looks a lot prettier. And so I wish they'd bring like the action button down the line. So that's available on like the Series 9, for instance. But we haven't heard any rumors of that. Um, but purely on bait on a color basis, I think the dark gray titanium would look a lot better than the kind of raw titanium option they have right now have they done dark gray titanium in the past for the yeah, apple yeah, watch yeah, the, yeah. Um, i think they did space black titanium that's right yeah um which they don't offer anymore no because now the apple watches come in stainless steel or aluminium and then you have the ultra mm-hmm. which is titanium but before they did the ultra they had titanium and obviously before that they had ceramic ceramic was still the best color by a mile oh um, yeah yeah just in terms of uh, beauty but it was also very expensive. A ceramic Series Nine or whatever that that could get me to jump ship from the Ultra altogether. I think <laughs> the white the white ceramic was just so piercingly like pearl, like the surface and the reflections on it were like really really pretty. That's what our colleague Ben Lovejoy he like bought a ceramic Series Five on eBay like last year just because he wanted the white ceramic and the. Obviously, the screen size change and stuff, but like in terms of processing chip, there hasn't been any difference, yeah. right? Like the Series 5 is the same. So 6, 7, 8 all had the same processor, essentially, and it was only barely different to Series 5. It's only now with the Series 9 this fall that we're actually going to see a CPU bump, which, like you said before, might not even matter because, you know, when do you notice CPU differences on that yeah. kind of timescale? I, I, my Apple Watch Series 4 is definitely struggling with WatchOS 10, as we've mm-hmm. spoke about on the show before. Like the animations and stuff, it really chugs on. Um, but that's a much older watch. Like if you're going, if you're upgrading from six or seven, I don't, not sure we'll see a massive jump with the Series Nine. But who knows? We'll, I guess we'll, they'll, they'll try and sell it. And I, I whenever someone says like, you know, why are they bothering to upgrade the chip? Because you're not going to know. It's just like, well, yeah, but if you do that for a long enough time, then it doesn't matter. So like, it's nice that they're upgrading it. It just doesn't mean that you have to, that you have to go out and spend your money just on this year. It just means when you eventually buy another Apple Watch, you'll have a better chip to enjoy. I'm curious, what else will be new? Because right now, all we've heard is the chip and then the new color for the Ultra. And then Shrimp Apple Pro also says a pink color for the Series 9. But other than that, Which is the nothing. pink rumored for the iPhone 15 as well, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. so that, that, that lines up. I wonder if it'll be pink or rose gold. They haven't had a rose gold Apple Watch for a while. They haven't. They haven't oh, had yeah. a pink one I don't either. know. <laughs> no. It's Barbie uh, year, mate. They're on the pink track. Ah, uh, that's true. That's yeah, I'm true. not sure we're going to see anything else new for the Apple Watch Series 9, unfortunately. Uh, by this time, you know, August, we're gonna ex- we expect the watches to be announced in a month, right? By this time, we the rumor would usually have a pretty good understanding of what's coming, and we just haven't heard anything. Uh, so I think it's just going to be a spec bump. I guess last year we didn't know a whole lot about what to expect from the Series eight but we ended what we end up getting crash detection which wasn't really rumored i guess we had the blood or the, not the blood the temperature sensor which that had been rumored yeah that was rumored then was there anything else last year that was about it i think yeah, yeah. are you gonna buy a new apple watch this year probably like the series 4 running on watch os 10 is not a good experience um like ignoring the the optimizations for the small screen size problem the performance is just so bad. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been ready to upgrade the watch for a while. I still, I wear the watch every day, so I'm, you know, but if I can last another five years with a Series 9, I'd be happy. And it doesn't, like, if there was rumors that, like, the Series 10 was going to have something dramatically brand, you know, amazing, right. I might be more inclined to just hold off for another generation. But 
uh, right now, doesn't seem like that's on the horizon. So. Seems like the next big new health feature will be what blood pressure, and then way further down the line, they're doing like the glucose monitoring stuff. But yeah, but that's 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 still pie in the sky kind of thing. Blood the blood pressure stuff probably will come to fruition in the next couple of years but it might start off as like ultra only for instance you know so yeah again that's out of my purview so kind of irrelevant my my thought on that is that it'll probably be more like it'll tell you if it seems elevated compared to your baseline or something but it will like the temperature act- sensor works. exactly yeah. like the temperature sensor yeah but i guess if your baseline is always elevated then i don't know what it's gonna tell you but <laughs> and maybe one thing that me and you could both agree that we might buy New air tag next year, according to Ming Chi Kuo. Cool. And in maybe, I mean, I don't know what exactly Apple could change. Oh, I've got some suggestions. All right, hit me. They could put a hole on the actual air tag itself, so you could yeah. put it on your keys without buying a stupid case thing. Doubtful. I would, I would enjoy that, but it seems a bit doubtful. Yeah, but that's like uh, the Samsung has very similar compared yeah. to air tag, and like I prefer the air tag in every single way, apart from the fact that it doesn't come with a hole bit onto it. Um, and the Samsung one does. And the other thing I'd say is slightly longer range for the nearby finding experience. Because yeah. the U1 chip um, ultra-wideband stuff is good when it works, but you have to be quite close to it for it to pick it up, so, which kind of defeats some of the points because that means most of the time you end up just relying on the beeping noise. Um, so if they can make the antenna radius on the ultra-wideband chip better, that would be beneficial. Which that's something Quo has also said is coming to the iPhone 15 this year, like improved yes. ultra-wideband, whether that's just upgraded version of the U1 or a new U2 chip of some sort, then... Apple would never put U2 in everyone's phones. Yeah, they never do that. <laughs> I love the AirTag. I think it's a good product. I use it. My, I we, We're coming up on, what, two years of it now? Um, I just got the notification to replace the battery on it again, so this would be the second battery replacement, but it's r- roughly running about once a year. And the battery replacements, I find uh, you they, they tell you when it's on about like 15, 20% battery, it could easily go mm-hmm. on three months before it actually needs replacing. They just they just tell you in advance. Um, but it's really simple. You just unplug the back of it, slap in a little new coin battery that are like two pounds or whatever. They're really cheap. And then you get a whole another year out of it. I've been, I, right now I only have one AirTag, which goes in my keys. And, you know, for the times when you lose the keys around your house or whatever, it's really good to just be able to find it again. Uh, but I am kind of looking vaguely on the market for a one that can fit in the wallet. You know, those kind of card ones. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that some like, third parties do that integrate with the Find My Network. So I might splash out on one of them at some point. Chipolo, uh, I think, is the big Chipolo name there. Chipolo one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their stuff's um, supposedly really good. But I don't think you can replace the battery on them, which is kind of made me a bit hesitant to jump in because it feels a bit wasteful to have to buy a new one every time it dies. But but I do lose my wallet sometimes. I'm like, I wish it could make a noise. <laughs> So, um, the Chipolo thing is like $30, I think. So I think that the benefit of that and not losing your wallet, even though you can't change the battery, I think it's worth it, Mayo. I think you should splurge on the $30 Chipolo card. We'll see. I'm I'm stingy. I, I don't like the idea of buying something that's going to run out of battery and then be useless, you know? Yeah. So I might consider like getting a different wallet that I could just slip an AirTag into, you know, that kind of that kind of situation or something. Um, and supposedly the Find My Network's open to accessory makers, so I'm still kind of waiting for someone to make like a Find My enabled wallet or something. That'd be really nice. Um, but the Find My ecosystem isn't particularly vibrant. No. <laughs> In fact, one of the main um, early adopters of it went back oh, yeah. this past week, Van Moof. They made an electric bike that had Find My integration, and now the whole company's uh, gone kaput. So that wasn't enough to keep them afloat. That story is sad. They seem to be doing so well then literally out of nowhere just like stop selling bikes then a few days later bankrupt yeah that's business i guess it's business (laughs) happy hour this week is brought to you by fast growing trees sign up at fastgrowingtrees.com slash happy hour and get 15 percent off this summer you could spend thousands of dollars on planes hotels and tourist traps or you could spend a lot less money and make a beautiful garden for yourself that will give you years of pleasure But if gardening normally sounds like a daunting prospect, don't fear, fastgrowingtrees.com is for you. Fastgrowingtrees has thousands of easy-to-grow plants, shrubs, and tree varieties, 
expertly curated for your unique climate and needs, from maya lemons to evergreens to shade trees and everything in between. And the Fast Growing Trees plant experts are on hand to help you choose what's best for you. You can chat to them online, give them a phone call, and even do a Zoom video call with an expert who can walk you through your entire garden to help solve problems that you're having with your plants. Their plant experts have specialized degrees and training to help troubleshoot from root to leaf. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants back from the garden center. With fastgrowingtrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days' time. Uh, now, Zach isn't here, but you've heard him talk about Fast Growing Trees before in previous episodes of the show. He got sent two plants from Fast Growing Trees, a fiddle leaf fig tree and an areca palm tree. And I know he absolutely love them, loves them. They've really enlivened the entrance to his house. I've seen photos of them on his porch. Months later, they're still going strong. They look great and they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And with Fast Growing Trees 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you can be confident that everything you will buy will look great fresh out of the box. So join almost 2 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash happy hour now to get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash happy hour. Thanks to Fast Growing Trees for sponsoring the show. All right, the Wall Street Journal this week had some details on a screen time bug in iOS 16 that I guess has been around for a while that basically makes screen time useless for a lot of parents because their kids can just override any of the restrictions. Like if they get the pop-up that they're out of screen time, they can press one extra minute and it removes all of the downtime limits completely. So Apple said that they're aware of this and they're looking into it. But the key thing in the story seemed to be that Apple claimed to have fixed it in iOS 16.5, but they didn't. And it's still even in the public beta of iOS 17. Yeah, this is a bit bad because screen time is privileged and that it's a system function, right? And it has deep access to the system to be able to do things that third-party apps cannot do, like, you know, control your access to other applications, restrict what you can do, what websites you can browse to, um, set time limits on other apps. Like, these controls are things that a third-party app store app would never be allowed to do and can't do because of the sandboxing model for, you know, for understandable reason because you don't... Like, the app store thrives on the idea that each app is self-contained and independent and if one app goes bad, you can just delete that individual app and the rest of your phone's unaffected. So, you know, on that entire model, third-party, like, parental controls management apps don't really have a way to exist outside of things that kind of intercept the network via vpn services some of those exist and for a while apple do you remember there was that drama that apple rejected them all uh, over privacy and then there was a debate about it and then they brought it back and they're allowed now as long as they agree to certain rules and stuff but you know ideally you wouldn't have to rely on a third-party provider that's going to redirect all your internet traffic through a vpn do analyze and filter and you know pay money for it when you've got this incredibly capable system now built into the OS that Apple keeps making better and better each year with updates. Um, but as this Wall Street Journal report had some quotes from different uh, families and stuff, unfortunately it's turning unreliable and not very useful because there's this bug where you change like one setting or you are or the 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 child requests extra time and then for some reason like the syncing breaks on iCloud and then it just removes all the screen time limits and you have to set it up from scratch and there were there are parents quoted in this story that are like I would rather use the first party system uh, but it's been such a nightmare that now I pay for a third party product just so I can you know have some parental controls on my kids devices uh like if this was a Mac thing it wouldn't be as big of a problem because on the Mac you can you know, third parties can have deeper access to the system and they can take it over. But on iOS, you're really counting on Apple to deliver its end of the bargain here. And they are they are not. I like the, one of these little tidbits in the story that says, the Tim Baker typically got requests from his two kids for extra time and thought it was odd that he wasn't hearing from them. Like, all of a sudden, he just thought his kids had stopped using their iPad that much. But it turns out, it was screen time that was broken the whole time and the problem kept going. And basically I think the solution is to reset the process altogether, then redo it, then it breaks again in a few days or a week. And the thing about things like screen time is that once a kid figures out a way around it or figures out that something doesn't work like it's supposed to, 
they're going to take advantage of that loophole. And I say that not because I have kids, but because I was a kid and I did that exact same yeah. thing. Like, yeah, and there's been stories ever since Screen Time came out of like different workarounds to kind of avoid mm-hmm. the the app limits. Like, if you want to watch YouTube, but the YouTube is blocked, you could go to the Messages app and just type in like YouTube.com and you know use the integrated oh, player right. to yeah. watch a video and stuff. Like, you know, stuff like that exists, and Apple's patched some of those holes. But this is really a severe problem because it literally like undermines the root of the feature, as in you set up the downtime limits and then the cloud sync breaks some for some reason it just resets the entire account so then there's no limits whatsoever and um, so hopefully they can fix it unfortunately the apple statement although they did admit the issue which you know isn't always what they do so some at least fair credit for them to saying that people are having issues they didn't say like oh and it will be refixed in the next release or we are working on a fix right now they just said we take these reports very seriously <laughs> and we have been and will continue making updates to improve the situation so uh, it doesn't seem like they're like ready to go with a release that's going to solve the problem. Um, it seems like they've been trying to solve the problem. Yeah, hopefully the renewed press attention will make the engineering resources buckle down and actually find the issue and fix it. Then also this week, some new rules for the App Store. So basically starting, I guess, this year, developers will be required to explain why they use certain APIs in their apps. And it'll be up to App Review to decide if that use is justified or if they need to stop using those APIs. So these are what Apple's calling required reason APIs. And the goal is to basically crack down on developers and apps that use certain APIs to collect data through fingerprinting, maybe under the guise that they're using those APIs for other things. So Apple's goal is to require developers to explain why they need them and to make sure there's valid reason other than collecting that data. Do you know what it means when they say, like, what is fingerprinting? Do you understand? Like, I don't know how widely understood that kind of term is. To a degree, I think. It's, it's, It's like when, like, say, Facebook, for instance, can find a tidbit about you through Facebook that they can then use to, like, ID you and track you across other facebook apps and other websites using that like that fingerprint that they have on like your device or your ip address or whatever i think is yeah, that like so, remotely right yeah that's in the that's in the ballpark so originally these kind of alternative fingerprinting solutions weren't necessary because the iphone would just give you the device's unique identifier um udid back in the day uh, which meant that any single app could individually identify each device separately and talk to each other across apps and they could perfectly target users one-to-one. That got slowly um, rescinded and fully removed with the app tracking transparency dialogue, right? That, and the app tra- tra- the identifier that, the, that you get when you accept the app tracking transparency dialogue, like you say allow app to track, is still mm-hmm. limited compared to the old UDID identifier. But even if you say don't allow, then they get nothing. Um which means that theoretically the app cannot identify the user unless they explicitly typed in like a username and password, right? Like if you don't type right. in any user identity, user information, how does the app know who you are or can use or can work out who you are to sell ads against you and then sell that data off to a third party that can also then show personalized ads in other applications? So as a workaround to Apple's crackdown, what has become more and more used um, in some for some more unscrupulous apps like this is a this is like a a gray area right because it's not really allowed but there's not really a way to stop it and what people do is they do this fingerprinting approach where they use enough random signals from the device that are unique enough that when used in combination they can identify you know one person or a very small group of people so they combine loads of factors and little tidbits of information on your phone to try and make an alternative identifier so they'll combine stuff like you know your region right so like your region setting your time zone um you know when did you first open the application what time did you wake up and you know so they can work out your like time zone and stuff so that you know you're you're basically taking your entire user base of millions and millions of people and trying to find different ways to segment them to reduce them down to smaller and smaller groups and you can get really in the weeds this. So um, system fonts were one way that this was being exploited. So, you know, the fonts that you have installed on your system vary depending on person to person, right? And so if you can make a unique identifier based on the, the fonts that are installed in the system, you can easily 
break down a million people into groups of 10,000 people, right? Because some people have downloaded custom fonts, other people won't. If you've got mm-hmm. a font that nobody else does, that's an identifier for you individually, right? It doesn't it doesn't say that you are Chance Miller, but it says that you are the same person when you pick up your phone again in a different application. And so that kind of tag could follow you across apps. Um, but system fonts is one example where now uh, on the web browser... The, the web browsers lie and they don't tell the website what system fonts are installed anymore to stop this from being exposed. But apps that are natively installed have more and more access to all sorts of information. And so what's on what's being discussed here in this latest round of things that Apple's cracking down on is stuff like system boot time. So a lot of people, and this is exploiting the idea that a lot of people don't reboot their phone, right? Like their phone's mm-hmm. just always on forever. Mm-hmm. And so what becomes a unique identifier is the exact instance of time when you turned your device on for the first time, essentially. Because if you never reboot it, you turned it on at this exact millisecond and second. Probably isn't there aren't many other people in the world who turned on their phone the very exact second and millisecond as you. So that can be used to exploit it. Similarly, disk space. Um, so each individual person uses their phone differently. They have more or less disk space. And for most people, the disk space doesn't change dramatically. It only changes very gradually over time. So these identifiers... Um, they can they can be coded in a way that can kind of like track it, right? So like if you've got 10 different identifying factors and then one of them changes, they can still reconstitute the same profile together. So like with disk space, uh, if, you've, if, you know, if you've only ever had one gigabyte free for your entire life and then suddenly you get two gigabytes free, it doesn't invalidate the entire system. It's just that, you know, there's enough statistical analysis being done to still combine it back together. So what's... Um, so disk space... APIs, boot time APIs, file creation data APIs, right? This is all the kind of stuff that Apple's kind of targeting in this latest round uh, of crackdown. However, the latest crackdown is not particularly um, punishing because it doesn't stop these apps from using these APIs because also these APIs generally have a legitimate reason to use them in many cases. Like some people need to know what the you know, when this file was modified or because they might have their own files, right? So just because these APIs exist, it doesn't necessarily mean you're using them for fingerprinting. They are just ways to fingerprint. And so Apple's kind of like dipping their toe in the water here to try and stop this by basically forcing apps to declare why these particular APIs and, and, and calls are being used. So right now you don't have to do it, but Starting in the fall of 2023, the App Store will notice when these APIs are used and force developers to include, you know, an explanatory text with their app submission. And theoretically, an app could lie and, right. you know, pretend and uh, and that might happen. And then it becomes a case of, well, is anyone going to catch it? Because Apple was not really going to check every single app to prove it. And But at least there's some more transparency than there was not at all. And I think in the long term... Apple, with future OS updates, will try and find alternative ways to kind of crack down and remove all of these holes. Like system uptime in a future release might not be available anymore. But for the t- for the short term, to stop apps from breaking, they're just requiring people to say why they want to use those things, for instance. So will an app get rejected if... Like, is Apple going to review the explanation? Or are no. they just requiring developers to say... This is why it's we just, use it. It's just like the privacy nutrition labels that they rolled out to the App Store, where you have to say, you know, as part of your app submission, you have to fill out the label. But Apple, each individual app reviewer is not checking that the labels are true, right? Like, right they don't yeah. look at your app and go, does it collect this, this information and not anything else? They don't do that because they can't. And it's the same here, really. You know, if you if you dedicated resources and time, you could investigate each individual app, but the amount of time it would take is un- is unreal, and you'd have to do it on every single app update. So Apple just doesn't bother with any of that. They're just kind of forcing people to attest to be truthful. And I guess if at some point it backfires and someone finds that an app was being mischievous, they can then point to the submission and maybe sue them or something. Do you know? What I mean, that's like the yeah, that's yeah. like the that's the stick of this equation. It's like the risk that you might get pushback from it. Um, but Apple is not specifically doing anything to like prove what you say is accurate. And in some of these cases, some of these APIs are very, very commonly used for non-malicious reasons. And mm-hmm. so, what's probably going to happen is like there'll be a website that just lists like a stock answer to this questionnaire, and like every app will just submit the exact same sentence explanation. Um, and then nothing really will change. Is unfortunately the reality and 
the, the people that are using it for fingerprinting will still use it for fingerprinting and the people that don't won't. Because the other issue with this is like, say if, you, if you're an app developer and you include a third-party SDK, you don't really know what the third-party SDK is doing. Right. So it could still be using it for malicious means, but you type in your little, you know, privacy box. Oh, I'm only using this API to know when the system was turned on so I can show a clock or something. You know what I mean? But then this third-party SDK that's private and opaque is using it for malicious reasons. Um, and there are long-term technical solutions to some of these things, like more precise sandboxing of, of third-party SDKs and stuff and locking things down even more. But because a lot of these APIs have legitimate uses, Apple can't just cut them off in iOS 17 because it, a load of apps would just break and not work anymore. So they have to start a very, very gradual migration process and basically getting the developer to like write a bit of write a paragraph down is like the first step of that. Um, so this individual change i would say probably doesn't mean anything practical for end user it just makes it a bit more annoying when you submit your app the first time because you have to write out some text but um long term i assume apple will do even more here um where they can but the short-term solution is just going to cause their developers to complain that they now have to fill out an extra box when they submit their app store app and to be fair they're probably right in that that won't make any manif- that won't manifest in anything <laughs> productive it's just a kind of like you know, legal boilerplate you have to fill out. Um, this won't cause nearly the, if any, blowback like app tracking transparency cost where you had correct, Facebook. Correct, because there's, like, no, there's no change in behavior to the actual application. You, all you have to do is fill in the text box. And regardless of what you, as long as the text box is filled, the app continues to you, to work mm-hmm. in exactly the same way as it did before, whether it's using it for good or for evil. Theoretically, Apple could look at like Facebook's explanation for what why they're using a particular API and make an example out of them or whatever, but Theoretically. Like you, yeah. Yeah. Seems like this is just the first step towards towards bigger changes. Yeah, longer term there might be like, for instance, user defaults is basically just like a place where apps and frameworks store little bits of information, just like a file system really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other apps and then, you know, other processes can read from it. But right now there isn't a hundred the the API isn't hundred percent locked down. So like a framework might put some information there that the app can read when it really shouldn't. In the longer term, Apple might introduce new functionality to the system that makes that more isolated and more sandboxed, but that will take time to adopt and you know um, roll out and everything. So the short-term solution is just you know write your reason in the text box and you better tell the truth, otherwise maybe we'll do something, maybe. It's an honor system, right? Yeah. It's a combination of honor system with a little bit of like theater. Yeah, and maybe if one day a big profile, a high profile app is found to be doing something that it says it isn't, then maybe Apple will like ban them because they'll say, <laughs> you said this, but you weren't actually doing this. Uh, but I don't know if that actually happens. I still see plenty of people violate the terms around app tracking transparency. Like the app tra- tracking transparency thing where it shows that pop up saying, you know, ask, ask app not to track or allow it. That pop-up is not you're like you're not meant to be able to gate functionality of the application. You're not meant to be able to um, like ask customers to like say yes. Like all the like if you look in the App Store review guidelines, it says you just have to present the dialogue and let the user choose of their own accord. But I see so many apps and games that are like we really need you to say yes because <laughs> it rely. You know we really need you to say yes, yeah. and then it shows the box, and then you can say yes or no. But like you know people people flirt the rules all the time. Uh, and there isn't really a way like apps at the end of the day they're just bundles of code bundles of arbitrary code and some stuff you can sandbox down and make it possible but anything that is in the realm of possibility you can't really review and lock down because you just can't do it um so it all it all relies you know the app store mostly relies on on a system already and it relies on if like i think the biggest security the app store offers is that if an app is found to be doing something bad apple can then remove it and nobody else can get it Whereas if you're on the open web, just because somebody flags it down, they can't take the website down, right? So somebody else would come along and install the bad application. So these days, that is the most... Or, for instance, let's say somehow some malware got installed in a legitimate app. Apple can very quickly remove it from sale, right, until it's resolved. So the App Store isn't, like, useless for security, but I think a lot of the ways that Apple positions it isn't a bit of a lie or a bit, of, like, misleading because there are limits on what they could enforce, Um and much of that just comes down to a function of scale, right? Because when you've got right. tens of thousands being submitted every single week, the amount of t- care and intention investigation Apple can put to each one is relatively limiting. And 
if you want to be super cynical, they spend most of their time in app review these days just enforcing in-app purchase policy, right? <laughs> Nothing about like app security or behavior or privacy. It's just about whether you're um, subverting the rules that mean Apple isn't getting paid 30%. Well, did you see this week where Elon Musk says he will speak with Tim Cook about changing some of those in-app purchase oh, yeah. rules? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, about so. like the create a gifting thing on Twitter, right? So yeah, exactly. That works for in-app purchase. So they give 30% to Apple with every purchase. Um, and obviously, they'd rather not do that. There is, interestingly, a already a provision in the App Store review guidelines that says if 100% of the gift goes to the creator, then Apple won't take a cut. Um, really? Yeah, but and I think in those cases you can't use in-app purchase, um, and this is used oh, by some. Okay. This is used by like I believe WeChat uses this. So like, if you were like a streamer on WeChat or like a you know creator on WeChat, the people users of WeChat can like send money to them and they can receive it. Um, but that only applies if the platform doesn't take any commission itself. If the platform takes a commission, as Twitter does. Uh, in this case, then Apple takes its standard 30%. So when when Musk goes and has a little chat to Tim Cook, he'll probably <laughs> get told, well, if you stop taking the commission, we'll stop taking commission. Um, but I don't think Apple's going to change the rules otherwise. So, but if Twitter stopped taking its commission, then they would still have to stop using in-app purchase. They'd have to use their own system. Yeah, it would be like, an, you know, like just pay through the web or yeah. know, they pop up a web view or something. I didn't know that. Or I believe you can make um because this this was like a news story. This wasn't originally in the rules. It got added like a couple of years back because I th- I can't. I'm pretty sure it was motivated by some app in China. It became a thing in China where um, creators would ask for gifts and like WeChat started doing it, and then some other apps started doing it, and then someone got rejected for it, and they made like a stink in the press about it. And Apple said, oh, "Okay, well, fair enough. We'll make this an official rule now, not just like a informal thing. As long as you don't take a cut, we won't take a cut." Um. And so Twitter could set up like a system where like you go to the website and you add like $100 of credit and then you could distribute the credit to, to people for free um, and Apple wouldn't take a cut of it, but only if Twitter didn't take commission. So yeah. And, I, and I, I'm not quite sure how um, like Twitch, you know like Twitch like live streaming get yeah. away with it. Because I, th- I think in those cases they let you buy the bits in the app, but they charge you 30% extra. I think that's how they get uh, it. So, they, yeah. so Apple does take the cut or you can buy it through the website and not have a cut so if you want my prediction on what happens with twitter i bet musk starts this thing where it's like you can buy credits through the web and then you can apply them through the phone app or something like that that's probably how it'll shake out something tells me elon musk doesn't know the ins and outs of the app store rules either so if he's listening to this that that guideline you talked about where they can stop taking a cut probably the first time he's hearing about it (laughs) he should put a little x next to that one on his (laughs) did you see that tweet deck is now X Pro. Yeah, what a terrible note. I X honestly thought Pro. someone was joking, but <laughs> like, I thought it was like Zach posted like a, a piece of satire or something. X Pro. X Pro. I guess the the payday for TweetDeck is going to come soon, where we'll have to start paying for Twitter Blue if we want to keep using it. I think they said August, but also now you can subscribe to Twitter Blue, but hide the check mark from your profile. So if you're ashamed, the badge of shame, you can you can hide it. And give you an incredible state of affairs. Yeah. Here's this product you can buy from us, but we know people don't like it, so you can hide it. Like it's just a travesty. This week we have some developments, sort of, in Apple's ongoing talks with the Pac-12 to get Apple TV streaming rights. Can you tell us about this, Mayo? Yeah. So the can you explain what the Pac-12 is? Because I don't really have a clue. The Pac-12 is like. A conference for college college athletics in the United States is usually like the West Coast is the teams in the Pac-12. But despite being called the Pac-12, I think they only have nine teams right now because they just lost a few. So basically, then, some universities, their college sports get broadcast right. through the Pac-12. Well, system, right? yeah, sort of. But yeah. like where I went to college, like Indiana University, like that's in the Big Ten. And then there's like so the there's SEC. other ones, right? So Pac-12's yeah. one, then Big 12 is another or whatever, and then there's... And it used to be like predominantly like based on like the geography of the schools, but that's not really the case anymore, which is one of the reasons the Pac-12 has lost, what, three of its teams, I think, or three of its yeah, colleges. And so, and so colleges join these conferences because they get basically a payout from the rights that the yeah. conference arranges, right? And 
And this is actually relevant because the Big 12 or Big 10 media deal was signed last year. um, And the schools in that conference are getting about 30 million annually. Um, But the Pac-12 deal uh, that is supposedly on the table right now from Apple is only valued at about 20 to 25 million base. Um, So there is already some chatter that even if Apple like secures the deal when it gets approved, a lot more schools will just defect because they want to get more money. Um, and so whether the Pac-12 can stay viable at all is a bit on the line. But the, the rumor here basically is that the Pac-12 was looking for a media deal of similar um, size and magnitude to what the Big 12 secured last year. The Big 12 deal is a combination of streaming and broadcast, but a lot of linear coverage um with like ESPN and you know NBC mm-hmm. and some other people, um, Pac-12 was were hunting for a similar deal like that. You know, in the region of thirty million a school, they didn't get any offers at all, <laughs> apart from Apple. Apple offered them basically primarily streaming only, um, and the again, this is all behind the scenes at the moment. Um, and the the reported pricing is about twenty to twenty five million per school with incentives if subscribers. Um, basically subscriber milestones are hit which would then reach the 30 or exceed the 30 million that the big 12 again and this deal structure is very similar to what apple's done with MLS season pass obviously where apple pays major league soccer 250 million dollars annually for the rights to stream all games through the apple tv app which customers can access with a separate subscription MLS season pass and then some of those games are also shown on broadcast networks but most of the games are only available through streaming that is basically what apple's proposing for the pac-12 2 where all of the, the Pac-12 content would stream through the Apple TV app, um, and then they'd also sub-license some games off to some broadcast networks. But most of the games would be streaming only. Uh, and so the members of the conference were told about this deal this week. They're presented with it. It hasn't been officially approved yet, it, but seeing as Apple's the only suitor here, they don't really have much choice. There has been some consternation from some of the schools, at least you know in the background chatter, that they didn't want to go streaming only because they're worried about exposure, right? Like they think mm-hmm. if you go streaming mm-hmm. only, and especially if in the Apple case you're going behind a paywall, right? Because it will be a separate subscription. The amount of people that are going to view your games goes way down compared to if you're just on a standard broadcast network or on cable. Um, and so that's a that's a factor, and then the money amounts are factored too. But because Apple's the only option, they'll probably get the deal because no one else is competing against them. And it seems like Apple has all the power here because my reading on it is like the Pac-12 is on the verge of falling apart if they don't get uh, a media rights deal done soon. Yeah, exactly. Um, My only thing here is like like the the MLS season pass system has gone very well, I'd say. And like it's really appealing. You can get all games through streaming. You don't have blackouts or geo restrictions and stuff. But I do think it is priced quite expensive. Like it's seventy nine dollars a season if you have TV Plus, and if you don't have TV Plus, it's ninety nine dollars a season. Like, yeah, that is a lot. It's quite a lot. And like, here comes along Pac twelve through the TV app, and then how much they're going to charge you for that? Do you know, like, I feel like the yeah, the, you can't charge people for every single sport that exists. Like the cable model you know, cost more up front, but you did get like a selection of games from all sorts of different sports, right? So like if you had ESPN, you'd get forty percent of the MLS games, but not all of them away. Or you'd get make or you'd always get your local team and then some of the national games. Whereas now it's like you get nothing really unless you pay money on a monthly basis to get season pass. Um the T V plus subscription includes some games, but it's not the same. And it, there's it's also com- complex because a lot of if you ask a lot of normal people they think you have to buy apple tv plus and then buy season pass on top right they don't really get Uh, the independent nature of it and so there's a lot of like education and teaching that has to go on there on apple's part and the 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 app design is definitely part of that like it's confusing and laid out and intermingled and stuff when it could be a lot clearer but just on a raw pricing perspective it's like you know, it's cool that Apple's streaming all these sports, but, like, at some point, they can't just keep adding sports and keep charging you $19 <laughs> each. Do you know what I mean? Like, it kind of breaks down at some point, so I don't really know where that where that juncture is. Because right now, if you look at what other streaming services do, they generally just include the sports streaming in the default subscriptions. So like, Paramount Plus has Premier League in America, right? Like, you don't have to buy the Premier League package on top. Um, I don't know if that model's long-term sustainable financially, because um, maybe they're losing money or whatever, but at least from a customer's perspective, it feels more welcoming. The Apple model is like, 
you know, we'll offer you all these sports exclusively, but you've got to pay for each individual one. And the cost is quite high. Uh, so I feel like something has to change there somehow. Um, but if you ignore the pricing, like season pass is like a great package. And like, you know, if you like MLS, it's like you get all the MLS games and you get extra content and it's all live streaming. You get English, Spanish and, you know, Canadian games in French too. So like the product's good. I just feel like the pricing model's not quite aligned with what people actually want to buy. Uh, I guess we'll see what happens with Pac-12. Like, oh, the college, you know, people that watch college sports going to buy TV, uh, going to buy the Apple TV package just for the Pac-12. I don't know. If you look at like MLB TV or something though, which is a lot more restricted because there's blackouts. So like, if you buy MLB TV and you live near, let's say like Cincinnati, you can watch every game, but not Cincinnati Reds games because they're blacked out in that market because they want you to watch via Bally Sports. But that package is like $140, $150 a year, I think. When it comes to sports, people will pay what it takes to get the to get the ability to watch, especially if, like in the case of MLS, there's no restrictions. You can just watch what you want to watch, and you're not going to hit play on a game, but then it's going to pop up and say, oh, you're blacked out. The argument is, though, if you're only like a casual viewer, like you buy cable right and like oh the mls is on i'll watch some games but like you're not going to go and buy the mls package do you know what i mean like so that's where it it kind of hits a crossroads which is what these universities are worried about with the apple deal because they feel like their their viewership's going to go way down because they're not going to get casual viewers they're only going to get people that go and actively you know the dedicated fan that actually goes out and buys the the packet the subscription every year well the pac-12's viewership's going to go down because they lost the they lost usc and ucla but that's besides the point i guess so is is there any other streaming rights for sports coming up because i know you told me i think just privately that this is kind of the last the last package that's up for negotiation until what's next like the nba is that the right NBA is the next big one but that's not until 2025 and um, so they'll start they'll start tendering offers for that next year and then obviously it will go into effect the year after um but if you look at most other sports they've already signed deals with streamers and you know traditional networks for and most of these sports deals last a long time right like the mls deal was 10 years for instance mlb's like you know five seven eight years or whatever and so apple is making big headways into sports but at least in terms of us like after the pac-12 deal was done there isn't really much left on the field for them to be able to bid for at the moment um i'm sure there's a lot of other sports they'd love to get into but they have to wait till the the contracts expire or i guess the people that currently hold the contracts uh want to leave and exit the business which may happen i mean a lot of media companies are struggling right now um but if you just look at like the contract terms they don't really have anything left to, to hunt for um, which that's what's happening with baseball right now too or bally sports is going bankrupt and yeah. all of these regional sports networks are falling apart because of it and i think right now what's happening is the teams are in some cases mlb itself is like setting up their own streaming service for each team like i think i saw the Cubs recently announced their own like marquee sports direct to consumer package where you can pay $20 a month and and watch Cubs games like without blackout restrictions just via streaming which that's only going to be more fragmented than what you were saying where you have to subscribe by by like league or if you have to subscribe by team so I don't think we found the the future model that's we we haven't found the perfect equilibrium yet the cable model was good in some ways and bad in some ways um the streaming models are also good in bad ways and and bad in some ways and i still feel like we're kind of working through that system and adapting until we find like the new future of how people like watch this stuff um and apple's trying but i don't was trying yeah i think they're doing a decent job at it um really i just feel like the mls package would be like way more appealing if it was like half as much (laughs) you know what i mean like yeah it just seems very expensive for what it is uh and it costs that much internationally too. Like that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Like MLS, you know, isn't the biggest sport in America by any stretch, but it's even less relevant in like the UK. Like, you know, English English f- football's huge, right? Um, it's cheaper for me to watch English football than it is to watch the MLS package. Like the MLS package over here is like fifteen pound a month or ninety nine pound a year. It's like crazy expensive. Did you um, say they don't offer any games for f- for free or through? They offer Apple- a few. A few, they still there's do. Like, okay. There's like two. There's there's when the MLS season's on. There's like I tell you, there's about twelve games a week, and you get about one or two for free. 
Okay, that's not that's that's not bad. I mean, app or Friday Night Baseball's paywalled now, isn't it? Just through Apple TV Plus. Yeah, but that's but I mean, if you have Apple TV Plus, you're only getting one or two for, for, of MLS. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It just feels like there's somewhere in between that would land better. Like if it was like forty dollars a season, maybe is like a more reasonable pricing or like five dollars a month instead of 15 or like 12 do you know what i mean like i just feel like the pricing on it is like quite high um but we don't know what apple would charge for pack 12 maybe it'll be cheaper or something maybe it'd be even more expensive <laughs> you can get mls season pass through t-mobile i think in the u.s i think that's how i have it then i've never used it it's free on t-mobile at the moment yeah but i don't think that's guaranteed forever i think it's, at the moment it's only on a one-year deal they might renew it or whatever but that's how i get mlb tv too it's just free through T-Mobile. All right. I think that does it for this week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts where you can leave us a rating and a review and find an ad-free version of the show for $5 a month or $50 a year. You can send us feedback, happy hour at 9to5mac.com, or you can find me on Mastodon, Twitter, and Threads at Chance H. Miller. And Mayo, where are you? You can find me on basically all those same places at BZA Mayo. All right. Thanks, Mayo. Bye-bye.